It's uh, always a pleasure to uh, welcome Cato's friend and H.L. Mencken research fellow, P.J. O'Rourke, to speak to our groups. Um, it's been great becoming friends with P.J. and Tina over the, year, over the last few years. P.J. offers that potent combination of wisdom, insight, and humor that is so effective. And it, it really is very appropriate that his affiliation with Cato is uh, in memory of H.L. Mencken, because you are his heir, probably his most, uh, most capable heir. Because when you read the Parliament of Horrors, which I hope all of you have, it's unbelievable. It's a civics lesson. It's a uh, seminar on public choice theory. It's kind of a user's manual for how the government works or, or doesn't work. And it's, it's hilarious. And I have said a couple of things every time I've, I've introduced PJ. Uh, he's incredibly prolific. He and I had a debate the other night as to whether he's written 19 books or 20, but it's a pretty big, it's a pretty big number. Um, and uh, the, the uh, story I always like to tell is when I was reading the Parliament of Horrors, there's a great story right in the beginning where PJ and a friend are driving along and they drive past some demonstration where a bunch of kind of hard left progressives are protesting something or other, and PJ's friend says, hey, why don't we ever protest? To which his friend replied, we have jobs. <laughs> so I don't think PJ needs any more introduction. PJ, welcome. Thank you. It's. Uh... It's, it's better than good to be here uh, uh, because in this room, we're, we're looking at what force stands between um, politics, which is pretty idiotic, uh, and is just rapidly getting more so. And here we have the force that can stem that tide, I hope, and inject a little reason and thought into it all. One thing about Parliament of Horrors, I wrote it quite a while ago, it's about how horrible government is when it works. <laughs> yeah. So did you have a good government shutdown? Are you, are you ready for another government shutdown? I, you know, for libertarians, a government shutdown, that was a real be careful what you wish for moment. You know? I've been calling for a government shutdown for, for years, for decades. You know. But what I had in mind was more like congressmen going to the payday lender, you know, senators sleeping under bridges, uh, presidents serving leftovers at state dinners, you know. I, I, instead, what we got was exceedingly crabby TSA agents. Um, uh, they, they, they would have done a strip search on me right in the middle of LaGuardia Airport if... Uh, if there hadn't been a whole line of people at the security uh, checkpoint uh, begging not to see me naked. Um, government shutdown, turns out it means, you know, Yellowstone Park Rangers having to pawn the bears to make their car payments, you know, it means National Gallery curators out chalking pictures on the sidewalk, hoping somebody will drop a quarter in their hat, you know, I mean, it means grade school field trips to Washington where the closest the kids got to a tour of the Capitol building was looking at the picture of it on the back of the $50 bill that uh, lobbyists charge per minute um, because the lobbyists weren't closed for business. And 
neither were the other high muckamucks who really operate government. I mean, the, the earls of entitlement spending, the magnates of unfunded mandates, the dukes of deficit, the nabobs of national debt, they were all, they were all working, you know. I mean, government shutdown, you know. Our government has gotten to the point where it's so bad at doing everything that it can't even do nothing right, you know what I mean? So how did politics get so bad? Well, uh, uh, it got so bad because it got so big. Politics got worse because politics grew. Now, lots of times when things grow, it's good, you know? It's like when the grown kids finally move out of the house, you know? I mean, but sometimes when things grow, it's a growth. It's a tumor. And right now, we have a gigantic political tumor. I'm not optimistic about the biopsy. I mean, the growth of politics is the opposite of the growth of liberty. The growth of politics kills the growth of liberty. When liberty grows, uh, we get growth of free enterprise, we get growth of free markets, we create more goods, services, and, and benefits to society. The pie gets bigger. But politics is not about creating more goods, services, and benefits to society. Politics is about dividing things up. When liberty grows, the pie gets bigger. When politics grows, the slices get smaller. Politics is all about to use the person that the, the, the uh, H.L. Mencken, uh, person I most admire, writer I most admire, uh, Mencken said politics is the auction of goods about to be stolen. You know? <laughs> uh, it's all about politics, it's all about promising things to people. Now, the promises are lies, of course, uh, but you know, it isn't just the untruth of a lie that matters, the size of a lie matters too. When the political system is relatively small, it promises a few things to a few people. Now, naturally, they're disappointed, um, but it's just a few people. Uh, it's just a small number of beggars at the polls looking for a political handout. And if they go away with a dime when they thought they were going to get a dollar, it's no big deal, you know, or should I say new deal or fair deal or great society, you know what I mean? We, we survive those things, if just barely, you know. But when a political system expands to the truly amazing, incomprehensibly large size of our political system, things are different. Our political system has grown to the point where it promises everything to everybody. And everybody is disappointed. Everybody goes away empty-handed. Everybody feels cheated. Now, does this make us mad at our political system? Well, yeah, sort of. But what it mostly makes us mad at is each other. At each other. I'm, I'm 71 years old. I have never seen this country so fractious, so peevish, so touchy, so crabby, so split into bitter factions. Now, I'm not saying we should panic about this. I'm not saying it's the end of the world or the end of America as we know it. I'm not saying we should stock up on canned goods and rifle ammo and Krugerrands and bury ourselves in a hole in the backyard, you know. America has been through worse divisions and survived. We survived the moral division and the heartbreaking violence that was aimed against the civil rights movement. Uh, we survived the rending of our social fabric uh, over the war in Vietnam. 
we survived my generation, the 60s, you know, I mean, the, the, us and our so-called generation gap, which turned out to be the gap between what my pot cost and the check my parents were sending me every month, you know. We survived, we've survived, but this is an angry moment. It's an angry moment and it is politics that is injecting the anger into this moment because Politics is a zero-sum game the way that freedom and free markets are not. And zero-sum games are not played for kicks and giggles. Although the zero-sum game uh, that we just had in the Super Bowl for the first three quarters. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, of course, there's competition in the free market. We all know that, but and that's what makes the free market work. Competition is the vermouth in the martini, you know? But as it is with martinis, so it is with free markets. For every one part competition vermouth, there are six parts, at least, of the top shelf gin called spontaneous cooperation among free people, which I may say always seems to leave politicians shaken, not stirred. Um, Adam Smith pointed it out 243 years ago. Among free people, in a free market exchange of goods and services, everyone comes out ahead. Each person gives something he or she values less in return for something he or she values more. Both sides win. You've got the olives, I've got the crushed ice and the shaker, and bottoms up, you know. But in politics, only one side can win. What's at stake in politics isn't goods and services, it's power. And power is always zero sum. When I sell goods and services to you, I gain something in return. When I sell you power over myself, and that's what the political exchange is, then I lose everything. Under the condition of liberty, if you have a swimming pool and a Bentley, I can get a swimming pool and a Bentley too. Under the condition of politics, you can drown me in your swimming pool and run me over with your Bentley, you know? In politics, only one side can win. This is bad, this is bad, but what is actually worse is it means that there have to be sides. There have to be sides. Faction, angry partisan faction, it isn't just a byproduct of politics, it is politics. Politics cannot exist without faction. Politics cannot exist without people fighting each other. Your yard signs are your regimental colors, you know? You, you know politics, put down the free market goods and services pie and pick up the pie-cutting knife of politics, you know? Freedom and free markets bring us all together in the marketplace. Politics carves us up. Politics pits us against each other. Politics turns us into warring tribes. Politics hands us the spear of outrage at the slightest perceived uh, insult to our, our primitive clan. It smears us with the war paint of identity politics. It gives us the shield of political correctness. And it tells us that it tells us that we're not naked savages squatting around a smoldering fire of resentment and envy. No, no, we're noble social justice warriors. 
Politics picks, pits one, one, one ethnic group against another. And it does it for free, you know, it doesn't even charge us for it the way 23andMe, you know, or Ancestry.com do, does, you know. Politics pits men against women as if we didn't have the institution of marriage doing a fine job of that already. I mean, <laughs> politics pits immigrants against Against who? I mean, we're all immigrants in this country. Even Native Americans came across the land bridge from Siberia saying, see you later, frozen Siberians in your itchy, woolly, mammoth long underwear and your mastodon meat on your breath. We're, we're off to the beautiful Pacific Northwest, you know, beachfront property, split-level split wigwams, uh, uh, gorgeous mountain views, salmon frying on the backyard barbecue grill, you know what I mean? Build a wall on the Mexican border stock market tip go long on the Mexican ladder industry. <laughs> you know, incidentally, I, I have a free market solution to the so-called immigration problem. You know, we don't need a wall on our border. We need gates with turnstiles and ticket takers. You know, the right way to limit immigration and make people in foreign countries pay for it is to charge admission to the United States. Disney World, Disney World costs, costs more than $100 a day. I mean, and there are supposed to be 12 million illegal immigrants in America, so by my calculation, we're leaving $438 billion a year on the table, you know? Plus, America has a lot more attractions than Disney World. I mean, the NASDAQ roller coaster is much scarier than Space Mountain. <laughs> and furthermore, think about what all we could make from the food and the toy and the souvenir concessions, you know? But... You say, what if people don't leave after we let them in? Well, well, we'll ask Disney. Disney doesn't seem to have trouble clearing the theme park, you know, at closing time. I'm, maybe we don't need a wall. Maybe we just need to dress our border agents in giant mouse suits. I don't know. But I digress. Finally, in this pitting of, uh, of ourselves against each other, and, and most dangerously, I think, politics pits one generation of Americans against another. The millennials are mad at baby boomers like me for soaking up all the Social Security and, and, and Medicare gravy while at the same time refusing to retire, leaving the millennials to work in the so-called gig economy where they make a living by driving each other around for Uber. Uh, and the millennials have figured out how to get revenge. Skinny jeans. Did you ever try on a pair of skinny jeans? <laughs> How do you even get your foot down the leg of a, you know? No, actually, the millennials have figured out a much better way to get revenge than skinny jeans. It's called voting. Um, there are now more millennial voters than there are baby boom, than there are baby boomers, period. And, and, and those millennials, they've got, they've got that Uber to take them to the polls while we're still trying to figure out how the app works, you know? How can a generation would close so tight be so in favor of such big sloppy politics? I mean, the kind of politics they get with, with Bernie Sanders, I think he was kind of first out of the box with this. Kids love Bernie. Certainly wasn't because he was a kindred youth, you know. Bernie's a, a paleo-socialist. I mean, back in the Stone Age, Bernie was demanding free stones for everybody, you know. I mean, no, it's because Bernie and his, the, you know, and his ilk, the Elizabeth Warrens, the Kamala Harris's, the, the Cory Booker's, the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's, uh, they have convinced the kids that, they, that the kids can't get more 
unless they use an expanded political system to take more away from everybody in this room, basically, you know. Uh, I, but can't these kids see that this expanded political system has an enormous, unsustainable cost? Well, no, they can't. I mean, when they're blinded by politics, they, 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 they can't see this. Our, our senior fellow at Cato, really, uh, uh, Randall O'Toole, and just a, a wonderful, wonderful book out called Romance of the Rails. And, and, and in that book, Randall, uh, 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 he's, it's a wonderful book. About, it's about how America is being railroaded into building a kind of transportation system with high heaven costs and benefits low as hell, you know. And, but Randall points out in the middle of this book, he says that to politicians, cost is benefit. Cost is benefit because it means more money to hand out, you know. Politics, by its own internal logic, is driven to expand, and yet politics fails because it expands. It's like a balloon. It's like a balloon. Think of politics as, a, as an inflatable latex item, you know, I mean, all you guys in the room know, <laughs> but that little inflatable latex item that we all carried in our wallets more in hope than expectation, you know, back when we were 16, it's like one of those, you know. Now, politics at that scale can be a useful safeguard, so to speak, you know. Even then, it always doesn't always work, you know. You can wind up in a shotgun marriage. But if you make like a politician instead of a Romeo, and you blow a lot of hot air into that inflatable latex item, it gets fragile. And actually, with politics, it's worse than fragile. It has the potential to be tragic. And when you overinflate politics, you start out with a Trojan, safe and secure, and a little foil packet of constitutionalism, and you can wind up with the Hindenburg. You know? I've been covering politics for 47 years, 47 years. I know politicians, I like politicians, I am friends with politicians from both sides of the aisle. Politicians are fine until they stick their nose into things they don't understand, which is most things. And then politicians turn into ratchet-jawed purveyors of monkey doodle and baked wind. They are the piddlers upon merit, beggars at the doors of accomplishment, thieves of livelihood, envy-coddling tax lice, applauding themselves for giving away other people's money. They, they are the lapdogs of the poli-sci class, returning to the vomit of collectivism. They are the pig herders tending that sow who eats her young the entitlement state. They are muck-dwelling bottom feeders growing fat on the worries and disappointments of the electorate. They are the ditch carp in the great river of democracy. And that, that's what one of their friends says. <laughs> now, my first political assignment uh, uh, was in 1972, 1972, to cover the, over in Miami, to cover the Democratic and Republican uh, presidential conventions. They were both over in Miami that year. McGovern and Nixon. And I thought to myself, well, at least I'm getting it over with now, going through the worst part of my political reporter career right at the beginning here, because, I mean, there's nowhere to go from here but up. <laughs> George McGovern, how's every, any, anybody ever going to get a bigger wackadoodle to nominate for president than that, you know? 
And Richard Nixon, never he's ever going to be able to turn over enough rocks to find a more low-down belly crawler than this guy, you know? Fast forward 47 years, and I've got them both, you know, wrapped into one guy, you know, belly crawler and wackle-doodle all put together and one big hairball in the White House, you know? Now, listen, not that I don't understand why people voted for Trump. I really do. I, I told, I'm full of sympathy, not necessarily for Trump, but I'm full of sympathy for Trump voters because his opponent was the Wicked Witch of the Midwest, you know I mean? The, in The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy's house fell on Hillary. That's who Trump was running against. So I, 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 I get it. Um, a little story, uh, incidentally, about, about how I found out back in 72, I found out ahead of time that Nixon was going to win for sure. Um, and, and, and this, I think this little story might tell us a little something about why Trump could win again in 2020 if the Democratic Party runs a commie dirtbag um, against him. You know, I was back in, back in 1972, I'm this kind of hipster slob, hippy-dippy kid. Uh, you know, you would have needed a power more to give me a haircut. Uh, I was wearing clothes like I'd gotten dressed in the Goodwill bin while I'm wearing a blindfold. I, you know, but I had my official press credentials and my, my ID and everything all around my neck. And I was headed into the Democratic uh, convention for, for, for the big vote for, to, to dominate McGovern. And, then, and back then, of course, security was nothing like it is today. I mean, security was just a, a couple of cops making overtime. So I'm going around the back of the convention hall, and I'm looking for the, the media door. And uh, I accidentally go to the delegate door instead. And there's like one good old boy, Florida State trooper, sitting there on a chair. And he looks at me, and he says, you a delegate or are you press? And I said, well, I'm, I'm press. And he said, yeah, I didn't think you looked dirty enough to be a delegate. <laughs> and I thought, Nixon's going to win this. <laughs> but politics has changed since then. I don't know how dirty you have to be to be a delegate these days. Pretty damn dirty is my guess. You know? Politics is in the gutter. Wrong metaphor, actually. I wish politics were in the gutter. I mean, and then we could spray it with the hose of libertarian common sense and wash it down the storm sewer. But that's not what's happening. What's more like politics has climbed the Empire State Building, or if you will, Trump Tower. You know, I mean, politics is this huge monster wrecking havoc, a King Kong, a Godzilla, gargantua Trump, Pantagruel Pelosi. I mean, uh, you know, Trump in the, in, in, in the Oval Office, like twi tw twitting his brains out, and Nancy, Pel Nancy Pelosi with her wonderful rhetorical style. She absolutely, I mean, when she speaks, it's, it's positively Shakespearean when she speaks. <laughs> double, double toil and regulatory trouble, <laughs> indictment burn, and, and impeachment bubble. Um, you know, politics has gotten so bad that Donald Trump and Ann Coulter are not speaking to each other. <laughs> and they can quit speaking to the rest of us anytime they want to, as far as I'm concerned. But uh, so it's up to us. It's up to us libertarians with our logic, our facts, and our nonpartisan principles to mop up this mess, or at least to contain this. And, and, and I, can it be, can it be, can a, a perfection be achieved? Can our ideals be achieved? No, probably not. You know, but can, 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 it wasn't always this bad. It can be ameliorated. It can be made better. Uh, I mean, my family background uh, was just like old-fashioned country club Republican. 
Uh, that is, we would have been country club Republicans if we could have afforded a country club, uh, or if we could have found a country club that would let us in. But you know what I mean. And, and, and I grew up in the industrial Midwest, so in a city full of old-fashioned liberal Democrats. But I didn't hate them. I still don't hate them. Yeah, yeah, old-fashioned liberal Democrats, they're wrong about everything, but, but you know, there's no inherent shame in being wrong about everything. I'm a married man with three adolescent children. I'm wrong about everything every moment of the day, you know? Old-fashioned country club Republicans, old-fashioned liberal Democrats, they were engaged in, in what was a, a kind of honest debate, you know? Not polarized uh, and, and, and at each other's throats the, the, the way that we see now. Uh, uh, we, we, people weren't like vomiting up hatred and making it go viral. Of course, back then the only thing that was going viral was polio, but anyway. Uh, it is, you know, in an earlier iteration of politics, we were just split on some issues. And fundamentally, we still are. Half of America wants more social services to be paid for by other people, and half of America is other people. <laughs> no? The way it was in the old days, we had two parties in this country. We had the stupid party and the silly party. Uh, I'm pretty stupid, so I, I usually voted for the stupid party. You know, I, I voted Republican because Republicans had fewer ideas, you know. <laughs> Although not few enough. Homeland Security, the Iraq War, no child left behind. What if they deserved to be left behind? What if they deserved a smack on the behind, you know? Nationwide testing program to determine whether kids are, are what? Idiots? You've got kids. Kids are idiots, you know? But that was back then. You know, the way it used to be was that the Democrats would say, government can make us richer and smarter, taller, with a better health insurance policy and 10 strokes off our golf game. And Republicans would say the government doesn't work, and then they'd get elected and they'd prove it. Um, Democrats would say, we don't know what's wrong with the economy, but we can fix it. And the Republicans would say, there's nothing wrong with the economy, and we can fix that. You know, uh, you know maybe when you remember back to the old days, you, 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 you thought, oh, oh, politicians don't accomplish anything because of partisan political bickering. No, 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 no. We wanted them to bicker. We wanted them to bicker because the two most frightening words in old-fashioned Washington were bipartisan consensus. Bipartisan consensus. That's, that, that, that was like when my doctor and my lawyer agreed with my wife that I need help, you know. <laughs> but, but something weird has happened to our old-fashioned political parties. Uh, uh, we know what happened to the Republicans, uh, 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 but uh, even weirder thing happened to the Democrats. Um, you know, it, according to a, a, a poll conducted by BuzzFeed, um, almost half of millennial-age Democrats identify themselves as Democratic Socialists. And according to a recent Gallup poll, nearly 60% of all Democrats have a favorable opinion of socialism. And you can see this trend in the number of prominent Democratic politicians who have signed on for, for you know, free college education, free you know, Medicare for all, uh, uh, you know, free college education and worth it, uh, free, free health care and worth it, you know. Free college, free health care, wonderful socialist platform planks for these hogs of media attention like Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris and Cory Booker and... Do not get in between any of those people and a TV camera crew. You could be seriously injured. You know? 
And of course, the wonderful platform playing for the, the, the it girl of, uh, of the moment, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the sort of the Betty Boop of progressivism. I think, um, socialism, socialism, it's been tried and tried and tried. Uh, we now have a pretty much irrefutable track record of how socialism goes, track record that is more than a century long uh, as of the November 7th, 2017 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution, and that went well. You know. How is it that so many young, fresh, new Democratic voters, and so many, maybe not so young, but full of fresh, new ambition, Democratic politicians are suddenly smitten with socialism? They're suddenly they're in love with socialism. Well, there is a joke that some of uh, 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 my fellow libertarian friends have been sending around on the internet that I think kind of explains um, uh, uh, why our millennial democratic socialists, why they fail to understand the danger, the often fatal danger uh, 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 inherent in socialism. So a libertarian walks into a bar at 9.58 p.m. And, and he just happens to sit down on a bar stool next to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And the Libertarian stares up at the bar's TV screen as, as the 10 o'clock news comes on. And the news crew, as their camera focused on, on a man on a ledge of a tall building getting ready to jump. So Alexandria, Alexandria looks at the Libertarian and she says, do you think he'll jump? And the Libertarian says, I bet he will. And Alexandria says, well, well I bet he won't. And the Libertarian puts a $20 bill on the bar, and he says, you're on. Now, so just as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez puts her own money on the bar, the guy on the TV screen does a swan dive off the building, falls to his death, splat. Now, Alexandria is very upset about this, but she hands her $20 to the libertarian saying, okay, here's your money. The libertarian says, I can't take your money. I, I saw this earlier on the five o'clock news, and, and and I knew he was gonna. I knew he, I knew he was gonna jump. And Alexandria Ocasio Cortez says, "Oh, I saw it too. I just didn't think he'd do it again." <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, that's that's everything I know. Um, but if anybody's got any questions, I'll be glad to make up some other stuff. Uh, we got a Peter, we got time? We got five minutes? Okay. Anybody got any questions? If we don't have five minutes, we can all go get a drink. You know? Any questions at all from the audience? Right here. Whoever that was that said right here, speak up. Sir. Hello. Over there, okay. <laughs> Great analogy. So who is going to win the 2020 election? Who's going to win the 2020 t election is the person that promises the most stuff that is absolutely undeliverable. That's going to be the person. It is. Like, 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 like H.L. Mencken said, it is an auction of goods about to be stolen, you know? except they're probably not even going to be able to succeed in, in, in selling them, but they're going to outdo it. David Boas had a great comment about this uh, not long ago. He said, you know, it's very easy to take the compassionate route, 
uh, is, oh, we should give more money to the poor, we should give more help to the sick, we should give more aid to this, that, and other thing. And there's some, there's, that's not without truth, you know. But the danger is in politics, it quickly becomes an auction. The, somebody comes along and says, oh, well, that's very compassionate of you to say that, but I'm so much more compassionate than you are. We, should, we shouldn't give a, like a, a $10,000 a year universal uh, basic income. It should be 20000 Or why not 50000 Why not 100000 I can be more compassionate than you are. Everybody has the capacity to be more compassionate than others as long as it's not their own money involved. You know? And, of course, with politics, it never is. So that's, that's your winner. Sir. Social media. Social media. Okay, so this was, for those of you who didn't, couldn't hear the question clearly, uh, it was uh, John Boehner was talking about, he had a one-line response to the question, what's changed in politics since you were there, which is social media. And whose bright idea was it to put every idiot in the world in touch with every other idiot? <laughs> There's a uh, review of uh, uh, what looks like a book I really want to read. Uh, uh, it was reviewed in the New York Times. For, for one thing, that's a first. Uh, a New York Times book review re reviewing a book I want to read. <laughs> I mean, you know, never mind. Um, but it's called Zucked, and it's about Facebook. And it's about Facebook written by one of the Facebook's main investment bankers. So this is a person that really knows... And the reviewer pointed out, he said, it's like, okay, we're always going to have kooks with us, but they used to be they had to pick up the kook phone, you know, they had to go to the kook hangout, you know, they had to read the kook mimeograph sheet, you know, and, uh, pay, you know, sign up for the kook newsletter, you know, and it was like a lot of work to be a kook. Now, just a couple of finger clip, finger clip, you know, finger tip, key, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. <laughs> One moment at the computer. And you're in touch with all the kooks that are on your kook wavelength. And I'm sure that it's just incredibly divisive. And it gives equal weight. You know, there was a time where you may have been full of baloney at the New York Times, but it took you 20 years of apprenticeship and journeyman reporter to, to, to get to be full of that much baloney. You know, you were like chief baloney monger at, at New York Times with lots and lots of experience. Now everybody's opinion is weighted exactly the same, except for, 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 for you know, uh, uh, the celebrities who go right to the top of the line and, and who, you know, uh, some the Kardashians' political opinions come first. <laughs> 